This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series. And honestly, statistically speaking, six out of seven dwarves are not happy. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and is probably the best meat eater in the world. So you think you're funny? Can you be funny in Chinese? In this episode, John and I are going to discuss humor in Chinese, some of the cultural differences of Chinese humor. And after listening to this, you'll either have Chinese friends laughing at your jokes or laughing at you. Either or. Guest interview is with Laszlo Montgomery, host of the famous China History Podcast, just celebrating its 10-year anniversary. All this and more, let's get to it. Also, just a note, we had a little bit of audio recording issues on this episode, so bear with us. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah. Hey guys, I am John Pasden in Shanghai, China. All right, John, before we cut into things, we have got a couple reviews. Okay, so this one is from Lan Da Wei. Comprehensible input and extensive reading. Hello, John and Jared. I was planning to go to China this summer for one month of immersion learning until the coronavirus ruined everything. Outcomes, plan B. I signed up for lessons on italki and I'm making friends in China using HelloTalk. I found that HelloTalk is a good way to communicate and get instant feedback. Topics you've mentioned, such as comprehensible input, have been invaluable to me as I'm discussing various topics with my online friends. Some of my friends want to improve their English reading skills, so I put what I've learned from Mandarin Companion to good use and got recommendations from Jared to provide English extensive reading materials. That's awesome. That's great to hear. One friend is reading Charlotte's Web to me. I provide corrections. I'm reading a Chinese Breeze graded reader, and my friend corrects my pronunciation. Don't worry, guys. The next graded reader will be one of yours. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on language acquisition. They're not only taking my Mandarin up a notch, but they're helping people learn English, too. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks a lot, David, and we appreciate the feedback. And we're also happy that you're using HelloTalk, Italki. We've mentioned these in other podcasts, and they're definitely good for getting additional practice. All right. We have got another one from Vasily Sarantsev from Russia. And she says, best Mandarin learning podcast ever. Guys, I'm so happy I found your podcast. It really levels up the methodology of learning. Thanks. Well, hey, Thank we you. appreciate that, Vasily. So what we want to talk a little bit about today is what is it with Chinese humor? Like, why is it so hard for us to joke in Chinese? Are there any tips? Is there anything about the culture that we should be aware of? Because if you've ever uh, especially lived in China or had conversations in Chinese, you've probably tried to make jokes in Chinese, and you have probably crashed and burned miserably. I know Jared has. Oh, yeah. But I, I think it's important to note that, you know, achieving humor, I think in any language, it can be elusive, right? right? There's times where I tell a joke, and I'm like, ha, ha, and I'm like laughing, and then everyone's just like, you know, crickets are chirping. In the distance, the dog barks, tumbleweed rolls, you know, through the room, something like that. And, yeah. you know, people just, it's, it's not funny. So for me, it like went through a number of stages. Like in the beginning, I couldn't communicate. So I had to level up my Chinese. Then I became fairly conversational. I'm like, okay, I'm conversational. Now let's the jokes begin. And, you know, they were all terrible. No one ever <laughs> laughed. You know, it, it was just total failure after failure. And so I, I eventually got to a point where I was like, okay, something is not working. I don't know whether it's me or the culture or what, but I'm just going to stop trying to make jokes because it seems to be a waste of time. And I'll just kind of spend more time observing what people actually laugh at because it's not me. And I might as well try to learn 
from the native speakers and learn from my environment. So it was much later when I, uh, my Chinese was already much better that I started to have some success in making jokes. And it tended to be kind of a low-key, understated humor. It was not the in-your-face sarcasm. And I think for me, what helped a lot is my wife, because my wife is pretty hilarious. She's one of the funniest Chinese people I know, and so she's good at humor in Chinese. Oh, I vouch for this. <laughs> and like, I've just learned a lot from observing her and you know, joking around with her. And if I joke with her and my joke is not funny, then she'll brutally let me know. But I think I have gotten funnier in Chinese over the years. Maybe I'm not hilarious, but I'm a little less crash and burn. I have a quick funny story. So this one time I got an email from your wife, but it was like a spam thing. I think they were just said send it from her email. And so I replied to it and I said, is this spam or is this real? And she replies, spam, just for you. <laughs> I, don't know, I just, I just, I must have chuckling at that. I'm like, she's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. But that was in English, right? It, it was in English. Yes. Mm. You know, it, it gets back to that point you're saying is that it takes familiarity with the culture in order to be funny in Chinese. Yeah, and honestly, it's not something that you can easily just pinpoint like, in Chinese, if you want to make a joke, follow these steps. I can say like, oh, that doesn't seem like it would work too well in Chinese, just based on a gut feeling. But um, it, it's hard to lay out exactly what the difference is. Uh, I actually do have a classic uh, Sino Spice, that's my blog, uh, entry on Chinese humor. And I'm not going to go into detail on the joke itself. That's in the blog entry. The, the point is this. When you get to the end of the joke and you tell the punchline, in English, we tend to stop before you lay out everything and you let the, the listener kind of make the final connections on their own. And often that's kind of part of what makes them feel like it's funny. But in the Chinese example, you actually spell out, you know, this is why the joke is funny. And the audience will wait for that and then they'll laugh. And as a Westerner, it's easy to kind of make the conclusion like, wow, the Chinese aren't too quick. Wow, they need jokes spelled out for them. But really, it's just a cultural thing. All right, so I think our audience does want to hear a little bit about how we've crashed and burned with humor a bit more. Now, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my wife and I, we opened a bakery in Shanghai and we do cinnamon rolls. And I'm going to tell you, like, I worked days, hours, months in that store and interacting with Chinese customers all the time. So customers would come in and there were a few things I used to do, which kind of, at least in my opinion, be funny. And John, you've been to our bakery, Sinus World, there before, right? Yeah, man, more recently than you have. So tell us, so when you order a cinnamon roll, you get a choice of different levels of frosting. So which one do you usually pick? I think regular. Got to watch that sugar intake, you know? You do, you do. And man, that cream cheese frosting, I'm telling you, it's really good. Chinese customers, they come in, and most of them, they don't like things that are too sweet. So, you know, we ask if you want frosting. A lot of times they say, you know, xiao tang, which is, you know, light frosting. But we have four levels of frosting. We have, like, well, actually five, you could say. There's no frosting, light, medium, heavy. And then we have this one that's just over the top. It's called Tremendous. And at the highest level, it's a bit ridiculous, but it's, it's li hai tang, which is, it's, it, Tremendous doesn't quite work, you know, in Chinese, but it, it sounds funny. John doesn't think it sounds funny. It's kind of a weird translation. It's not something a Chinese person would do, right? Exactly. And that was the whole idea because it's just kind of like over the top. Anyway, so sometimes we have customers come in and, and usually they're girls and they're ordering cinnamon roll. And I'm like, what kind of frosting do you want? Do you want, you know, light, medium, heavy, or tremendous? And they'll be like, oh, shao tang, light, light frosting. Like, oh, jen shao tang, you know, regular frosting. 
no, 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 Shao Tang. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, Duo Tang, which is like heavy frosting. And they're like, no, Shao Tang. I'm like, oh, 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 Li Hai Tang. And they're like, no, no, no. And I'm like, ah, Kai Wan Xiao. And then they'd be like, oh, he, he, he. And I've literally done that, John, like thousands of times. So are you like playing the, the foreigner card, like, oh, the foreigner doesn't understand me. I'm going to get way more frosting than I want. <laughs> and like, horrify them but then, exactly but then when you tell them they're kidding and you get a wide range of responses but like some of their eyes would get increasingly large to like we get to like you know tremendous frosting they're like <gasps> they're like no not that much and i'm like i'm just kidding and i'd even start like putting the frosting on and and i'm telling you the tremendous frosting it's like two layers of thick frosting but come on um, they might, they might so just be cool. laughing in relief that they're not going to get way more frosting than they want rather than thinking it's funny i think I think maybe you have more fun with that joke than they do. I, maybe I do, but uh, my employees always seem to laugh at it, too. They're kind of like, hey. I feel like this is a joke that's, like, evolving. Like, you're starting to get an appreciation for what amuses people, but it's not quite, like, uh, native-like at all. Let me just make one little comment about humor that totally doesn't work, because I think I've seen some foreigners try to do this. You know how, like, in recent years in uh, American TV shows and stuff, like, there's this kind of, it's almost like a lame punchline where someone's like, seriously? And it's kind of funny the way yeah. they say it. Like, don't try to do that in Chinese. You're like, gender. Like, I don't know. It, like, it does not work. You know, John, as you were saying that, it maybe reminds me that, oh, you know, I kind of, like, complete the joke a little bit. I explain what I was doing. And I think when I say that, people find that a little funnier. Like, I was bullying you. Yep. <laughs> verbally. I was you... verbally assaulting you. Ha ha. <laughs> but it works. It works. But, you know, there, there's a lot of other things I said. One of the classic ones I say when people come to the store. Now, you know, obviously, imagine you walk into a bakery and all they do are cinnamon rolls. What's it going to smell like? Heaven, of course. Right? And you people come in the door, they're like, oh, Oh, it smells so good in here. It smells so good. And I, and usually I'll say, oh, mian fei wen, wen. And they just chuckle right away. And what that means is free smells. So I actually kind of ripped it off Jimmy John's of here in the States. <laughs> All right. Now, see, that one I think is a good example of humor that works with the Chinese. And I, I can't really tell you why. You know why? Why? Because it's free. <laughs> First of all, you're not bullying anyone. And it's easier to make jokes about like, purchases you know about prices and you know discounts and reasons for giving discounts like uh, you know the chinese often like to like if you chat with the vendor and you establish a rapport you start asking for the friend discount and it's not a joke but like you'll get laughs just because <laughs> you have this rapport you know what i'm talking about you know sometimes as well john like we have like in the store we'd have volume discounts so you know you buy one uh, was like 18 RMB by two is 30 and then you know goes down from there and so sometimes I'd make jokes about the pricing you know I say oh you know for for two normally it's 40 but for you it's only 30 you know and they'd be like hee -hee. <laughs> you and your tea it's a little bit I don't know. Hee -hee. well yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> well thanks John I thought it was actually funny but you know this <laughs> is stuff I do in the store but you know also this is a bit of my style of humor John right and the other thing, too, is I dealt with a lot of people in government jobs. You know, I deal with the Commerce Department, ah. the Health Department. And I'm telling you, the people who are working in these departments, people are coming in and they're angry. You know, they got their walls up. They're overworked and underpaid. And 
things like that. So when I come in, I've done this before with like my employees have been like, don't do this. Don't, don't say, you know, and I, I just, i joke with them or I poke fun at them and it just brings the walls down. Wait, hold on. So you'll be talking to a, a government official and you'll be like, nice tie. Where'd you buy that? You know, <laughs> like, what are you saying? So this one time I went to the health department, we were opening up a store in Pudong. And now I'm telling you, like, the lady who was in charge of issuing the health permit for like this area, man, she was a battle axe. Like my employee went in there once to go see her and she just like ripped everything. This is bad. This is wrong. Anyway. And, and she was like, you have to change everything. And, and so I went back with her a week later with some revisions and I, yeah, I got there and yeah, she's you know, maybe in her fifties and she just had the stern, like angry face, you know, and I sit down at her desk and she looks at me, you know, and she doesn't say anything about me being a foreigner, but obviously, right. I am. And I, I look at her like, oh, you know, we're this company and we're, you know, opening the store. Oh yeah. I remember you guys. And I'm like, she takes the paper and she starts looking at it and reading it and looking over it. And I'm like, Oh, I'm like, oh, you're too happy. And she, she looks at me and she grins. And from there, it just all went better. She softened up and I poked a little more fun at some things and went over the top, you know, on like, oh, you're just so nice all the time. Thank you. You know, and she just, she just, it, I don't, it worked. Okay. But you weren't commenting on how attractive she was or no. offering bribes, right? No, no, that, that wouldn't have been true at all. <laughs> yeah. I want to put in a disclaimer here. Your mileage may vary. We do not hold ourselves responsible for anything you do. If you follow Jared's lead here. All right. One other thing related to humor, which I think is interesting, you know, it relates to Chinese culture is, is Chinese culture changing? Because, you know, the older generation that went through the Cultural Revolution and everything, they, they have a very special set of life experiences. And I think it kind of makes them quite different in their attitudes towards foreigners, towards humor, all kinds of things. And, you know, kids that are born, you know, in the past 20 years, they're very different. And so if you look at Chinese humor, obviously it's got to be changing. And uh, one thing that's interesting in Shanghai is that stand-up comedy over the past 10 years has become, like, bigger and bigger in China. Like, it used to be that Chinese didn't really even know what stand-up comedy was. Like, they were used to Xiangsheng, which has two people. Uh, stand-up comedy's only got one person. In fact, they, they sometimes referred to it as one person Xiangsheng because they knew Xiangsheng in a, you know, the crosstalk with two people. Yeah. So clearly things are changing. And maybe that means that it'll get easier and easier to make jokes as a foreigner speaking Chinese. Yeah, doesn't Xiangsheng mainly, like, rely on, like, wordplay and puns and stuff? Yeah, and it has a straight man and a, and a funny man. It follows a, a very clear recognized format so like you know who's going to be telling the jokes and mm. who's going to be pretending not to get what they're saying you know so it's like mm. it's very familiar and comfortable but it can still be very clever it's just uh you know a very chinese format but you know something else i've observed john is that a lot of listeners here maybe if you haven't seen it already you need to follow our manner companion meme account we have on instagram and on facebook and it's about learning chinese but the funny thing, John, about this is that a lot of times I publish these memes and I make these memes and I'll share them on maybe other areas as well. And if Chinese teachers come across them, typically they look at them and they're like, why is that funny? Or they're like, no, no, that's wrong. That's not how it is. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of older people that you know, are American or English speaking don't get memes either. They just don't think they're funny. But, you know, when it comes to a Chinese teacher, you got the generation gap and the cultural gap, and it just doesn't quite land with them, does it? Yeah. Now, a case in point, 
One of the memes I had made, this was back in June. So the text on it says, how long have you been studying Chinese? Reply, two years. And so you can have a conversation in Chinese. And now the picture is of a, of a cat with a microphone up to it. And so it's, you know, the cat's like supposed to be replying. And then, you know, so you can have a conversation in Chinese. And then the cat on the second panel, his eyes get big and they're welling up with tears, you know. And so it's, it's very relatable because as a learner, we're like, oh, I've been studying two years. Yeah, great. It must be good. So you can have a conversation in Chinese and you're like, oh, actually, maybe I can't. And it got like over 5,000 likes on this one. But, you know, some of the comments from teachers are kind of like, oh, you just need to study a little bit more. Or I help all my students, you know, review the vocabulary more and create real life <laughs> situations so that they can learn to have conversations in Chinese. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. Like you're trying to like provide a solution and that's not the point. It's just funny because us as learners, we can relate to this. We know what it's like. This topic of humor is difficult. Don't expect to be good at Chinese humor right off the bat. I think, though, about humor, just in general, it takes practice, right? So if you are going to try to tell jokes in Chinese, well, sure, go ahead. Sometimes you're going to be the joke, and you got to accept that. But if you look at the stories and the experiences of any stand-up comics, any of these people who we consider really funny, they had years of practicing where they were not that funny or marginally funny. So it's one of those things. I think it's going to come along with practice of the language. You got to be able to be conversant. You have to be able to have a feeling for the language. Also, you have to have an understanding for the culture. And you have to be able to deliver fluently enough that people are going to find it funny, considering it is funny in the first place. So, yeah, stick <laughs> at it and practice. I mean, I tell you, like, those stories from my bakery, John, you know, I've seriously told those jokes thousands of times. And so... I think my delivery is pretty good now, but it wasn't at the beginning. And if you'd like a little challenge for Chinese humor yourself, maybe to get a sense for how it doesn't always work, here's a challenge for you. Try to tell the why did the chicken cross the road joke in Chinese. See how many laughs you get. There's a challenge. <laughs> crickets. I predict crickets. <laughs> and then trying to explain it, which might take half an hour. So make sure your schedule's clear for that one. <laughs> All right. So now a word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is Mandarin Companion. Today we are talking about one of our original books we published, John. It is The 60-Year Dream. Now this story is based off of the Washington Irving's original story, Rip Van Winkle. But if we had, uh, you know, told the story in an American context, that would be a little weird. So we have localized it to the Chinese context, making it, in effect, quite a history-centric book, probably more so than any other book we have. Absolutely. And, you know, John, I remember when we created this book, you said, hey, I think teachers are going to like this book. You're right. I've talked to a lot of teachers about this book, and they're like, yeah, I've been used this in my classroom, and it gives me so many opportunities to talk about how China changed from the imperial government to, you know, the communist government now and how things developed and changed over the course of 60 years, obviously. And so there's a whole lot to talk about from that aspect in the book. Yeah, and in order to make things uh, a little more, I don't know, smooth or maybe easy for ourselves— we made it 60 years specifically so that we could skip the Mao era because, you know, that brings a lot of complications. You guys can get it today. You can find it on Amazon, on Kobo, iBooks. You can get your paperback or digital edition in traditional or simplified characters. It's a 60-year dream, Manor Companion, 
Level one, 300 characters. All right. Thanks for your support and enjoy those books. All right. Now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? You got a rant or a rave? I have a grumpy rant. Oh, gosh. Well, lay it on me, man. All right. So here's my rant. And um, I kind of hate to get political. Fundamentally, it's not a political rant. But anyway, the uh, political background is that recently we've been hearing news about how some Chinese apps are going to get blocked, like WeChat's going to get blocked in the U.S. maybe. TikTok is going to get removed from the USA or possibly acquired by Microsoft. What really bothers me about this is not the whole economic struggle or whatever. What bothers me is that these are platforms for people to communicate. These are currently ways that uh, people in the U.S. can communicate directly with people in China. And I think that kind of communication is really valuable. And in fact, you know, that's why I set up my company, All Set Learning. That's why Jared and I do Mandarin Companion, because we want to share the love of learning Chinese with more people. We want to make it possible for more people to become fluent in Chinese and to be able to talk directly with Chinese people. But then when these channels of communication get removed, then you can't have that communication. You, you have this isolation. To me, that's the worst. Like, you know, you can pull down companies from stock exchange listings and all that. But when you start pulling down channels of communication, I feel like that's detrimental for the studies of everyone learning Chinese. And it's also detrimental to the cause of world peace. Uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. So, yeah, I'm kind of bummed about that. That is my rant. Yeah, you know, John, it's just really unfortunate. And that's something, you know, in our interview today, uh, we even touch on some of these things about the isolation that's kind of happening a little between the Western countries and China, but specifically America and China. Anyway, Jared, you got a, a rant or a rave, maybe a little positivity for us? I do have a rave. Oh, yes, John, I've got a rave today. We are releasing some merchandise for the podcast and for Mandarin Companion. Now, before everyone gets all excited about this, you should actually be more excited because they're not actually Mandarin Companion and You Can Learn Chinese podcast t-shirts. These are t-shirts about learning Chinese. All right. So we already have a few shirts out. I should say actually four with more designs to come. So we have, I don't give a shi. So like shi ting to shi. Also, I've got, uh, if you've seen that meme with the angry guy pointing at his hand and he goes, Jugga. So I have that one. We have uh, some other ones we've designed as kind of a, a play on the Bernie Sanders meme. We have a whole bunch of ones coming down the line, you know, pretty schwai for a lao wai. And John, I'm really excited for the one series I'm working on right now, which is going to be the animal shirts, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about that quite a bit. Oh, yeah. So you're going to have ones that have a bunch of animals on it. So it's going to be like the bag rat, the stinky weasel, the fire chicken, the business goose, the sea piggy. And those are all like kangaroo, skunk, turkey, penguin, dolphin translated literally from Chinese. So we got a whole bunch of those. You can check them out in the show notes. We're just trying to get it out there yet. We don't exactly have them up on our website yet, uh, but we will be pushing them as well through our Instagram and Facebook channel. And the one shirt that's going to be super awesome, I think that people are really going to want, we're going to have one that's going to say, so it's going to say, hey, speak Chinese with me. <laughs> so if you want to practice your Chinese, just wear the shirt and you're guaranteed to get some conversations. And John, you know what the best-selling one is going to be? <laughs> what? And if you know, you know what this means. Horse, horse, tiger, tiger. Okay. I'm not impressed, man. <laughs> 
You just wait, John. That's you what you wanted to do. Wait. That's what you wanted. All right. Anyway, enough of this. Failed attempts at humor and successful, whatever. What do we got up next? We have an interview, right? Interview. Let's cut right to it. Say your name. Laszlo Montgomery. And tell us what... China History Podcast. <laughs> so you, you're the host of China History Podcast. Host and creator. Laszlo's China History Podcast is the go-to podcast if you want to learn all about the long and at times complex history of China and Chinese people around the world. There's topics on things like Chinese philosophy, the history of Chinese tea, Chinese Americans, overseas Chinese. Laszlo shared with me his stories and perspectives on China. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Stay with us. What captured your fascination about China in the very first place? You know, I remember I was listening to your uh, previous episode. You had Jeremy on, and I had sort of a very similar inspiration as a young child, maybe five, six, seven years old, going to Chinese restaurants. (laughs) And at that young age and, and, and seeing all the Chinese art and the chopsticks and the teacups and the carved wood. You might laugh at that and say, ah, Orientalism and uh, this kind of stuff. But at that age, that was my gateway. So I always had that innate fascination. And then fast forward to 1979, I was in college, University of Illinois, Deng Xiaoping came to the United States and kick-started relations. Jimmy Carter was president. I was in college in January 1979. I'm just finishing off my sophomore year, and mm-hmm. I see an advertisement in the Daily Illini offering two semesters of Mandarin in a summer program. Well, what was your Chinese dream, Laszlo? My Chinese dream was to study Chinese, learn to speak Chinese, and like get a job on like a freight forwarder or something. So how's that for vague and not very <laughs> well, far-reaching? Well, I think, you know, when we're young like that, sometimes we don't have those specific dreams, right? We just yeah. need to have something vague, right? But what, kind of what, what happened for you there? I mean, you, you started learning Chinese. What was that even like back then? 1979. Well, first of all, there's no internet. So to learn Chinese. I mean, you had to do it by brute force. I used to like walk around with my Liang Shi Chou mm-hmm. dictionary, and I just learned how to use. It. I, you know, could read Ba Pa Ma Fa and Pinyin, and uh, <laughs> I'm a master at looking things up in, in Chinese dictionaries. It was rough, and what was really interesting was also uh, like seventy eight, seventy nine. The first students from China began coming to America to study. They were all scientists. They were advanced degree Mm -hmm. (laughs) engineers and and whatnot. And they were all like mostly men in their 40s. And they came here, very a very, very basic subsidy. So a lot of them came to the University of Illinois because it was top engineering school in the country, one of them. And this was wild. These were people from China. I -hmm. grew up in these Cold War days, there was no relations with China. If you met a Chinese, they were from Hong Kong or just some overseas Chinese. It was very, very rare to meet someone that lived in China. So knowing these guys was a real trip. It was a real eye-opener. I learned so much from them. Hanging out with them, I teach them English, and 
they would teach me Chinese and how to cook <laughs> and started thinking about a career. Maybe I'll move out to Asia. In 1981, when I graduated, the options were not like they are now. So I moved out to LA. I said, eh, I'll get on that uh, Pacific coast. It's closer to the Pacific <laughs> Rim. And you know, there's more opportunities yeah. uh, to get out to China than in Chicago. This is a great thing to hear from you, Laszlo. A lot of people out there, they're studying Chinese. And some people just have an interest in Chinese. Some people, maybe their parents wanted them to do it. Some people just saying, hey, yeah, I have these career goals. But I want to hear, like, what kind of opportunities did Chinese open up for you? I moved out to L.A. I worked at a company called the Flying Tiger Line. It was an air freight company. FedEx bought them in 89. And I, other than speaking to my Chinese colleagues, I didn't use it at all. I was in computer operations. I just moved out to Hong Kong. I said, screw it. 1989, with no job, no nothing. I'd just been married. You know, my wife is from Vietnam, so moving to Asia was no big deal for her. <laughs> but June 4th had just happened. For our listeners who may not be familiar, what is June 4th? The Tiananmen Massacre, or what you want to call it. Well, you have a whole podcast about that, right? <laughs> It's mentioned in several episodes, but anyway, it's a sad moment in Chinese history. Still sad all these years later, but it had really put a damper. Everyone told me, said, ah, you know, don't go out to China. U.S.-China relations are finished forever and there's no future. And I went anyway. I found a job in a career that I pretty much, that's where I spent the whole arc of my career in manufacturing consumer products in China for the U.S. and European mass market. All I ever wanted was like a nice office and a tall building and working (laughs) for some investment company or something. And I ended up in this career, but it it was good. Well, Laszlo, something I want to hear about is uh, you were in Hong Kong right before the handover back to China. And that was in 97. Is that right? Yeah. July 1st, 97. So you had a front row seat to this. What was that like? You knew you were watching history unfold. I'll never forget the day. and It was just very stormy. The governor there, Chris Patton, he was going to show China, put in all these democratic reforms, and Uh China did not like that. Oh, it was such a process to watch it unfold month by month. And then the day came. And on July 2nd, woke up and it was just like any other day. All these things that have all that ultimately happened and happened recently and over the past few years, I was the worst case scenario. People would say, oh, might that happen? And, you know, people said China stands to gain nothing from doing that. And, you know, it's, it's funny are. now yeah, to remember so clearly and having these discussions. So, Laszlo, I want to hear from you, like, what started your fascination into like Chinese history? Because I mean, you have the Chinese history podcast and it's been going for what, 10 years now? Yeah, 10 years. So like normal people don't do this. So (laughs) I never said I was normal. (laughs) (laughs) So like, how did this start for you? I was Chinese history major at University of Illinois. And I had a second major in Asian studies in Mandarin. But in around 2000, Eight, when podcasting started to come out of its shell, 
And there was this one guy, his name was Bob Packett. And he was sort of a corny, folksy kind of a guy, just sort of like the high school history teacher that nobody ever forgets. And he did this uh, podcast called History According to Bob. I mean, he ran the whole thing from the seat <laughs> of his pants. And he just covered general history from all over the world. He taught it as an academic, teaching it to non-academics. I listened to him quite a bit. And I thought, gee, a guy could do this. You know, why don't I do something with Chinese history? So I just started recording. I recorded like 10 episodes with my MacBook, like talking yeah. into the built-in my in, in in my living room in my home, which had this big cavernous high ceilings, all wood floors, and it was like echo. an echo chamber. <laughs> but I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, I feel it took about a hundred episodes to figure out how to do it, mm. sort of come into my own style. Well, something that I I've, I'd be interested to hear about from your perspective. You've been doing this for a long time. You have read more Chinese history than any of us listening are probably ever going to get into. So you have covered even a lot of stories of foreigners that moved to China 100, 200, 300 years ago, right? Early days, even early missionaries and stuff who went to China. I remember reading the story of William Mency, one of those podcasts that you, you covered him. And I want to like hear from you. What perspective could you give to us like about like learning Chinese? What did these guys go through? Like, how did they actually do it? There were, there were no textbooks back then. Wow. I, mean, I get asked that question a lot. Get out there. You got to go move there. Either move to Taiwan or move to China. That's what was it for me. I studied Chinese for two years and lived in California for eight years, speaking it a little bit with colleagues. And by the time I got to Hong Kong in 89, I could still barely speak. Now, even though I was in Hong Kong, and even though everyone spoke Cantonese, I was the only Westerner, was the only foreigner in this Chinese mm -hmm. company. And it was sink or swim. A lot of them did not speak English, but they did understand Mandarin. So if I wanted to get anything done in the company, I, I had to get mm. over my fears and embarrassment and had to just start speaking it. And that's really, I mean, all of a sudden, I just started having vertical growth in my speaking ability and writing because I had to write a lot of memos. You, know? you had handwrite then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had to drag the, I was using a typewriter. I had to drag the boss kicking and screaming to buy his first PC in like uh, 1994 uh -huh. or something like that. Wow. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really ancient. Can you think of back of any stories? So any interesting stories of some of these early days of what they went through to learn Chinese or, uh, anything like that. They all did the same thing. They all learned it by going out there and being forced to speak it. You, you, that, I, I believe that is the only way to do it. Trust me, I am the guy with, with 25 dictionaries and books with vocabulary words. You could learn all the book learning you want and listen to all the tapes. I, I did learn from the Defense Language Institute Oh, yeah. Tapes, you know. The, yeah, I know <laughs> that like, stuff. They teach you dialogue that you would never use in a, unless you went into the military. You got to go out there. So that's what I always tell people. And, I, and I've gotten feedback. I've gotten emails from podcast listeners who have said, hey, you know, I listened to what you said, and now I'm living in Nanjing, and everything's great, and I'm working, and my language is really improving. 
So, so I'm also kind of curious, you have a lot of perspective because you've looked at a lot of the history of China. What do you see as like the future of China and the importance of Chinese in the, in the, in the world economy? Well, you know, it will always be a giant in the world economy, but my main concern is trying to get out of a situation that the U.S. and China over the past several years have sort of each side has sort of painted itself into a corner. So I don't know who's going to make the first move, but we have to get out from behind this situation that's been created where the, the two countries have become very adversarial. What do you think would be a solution to that? Uh, well, a lot of people say, oh, a change in leadership, but the leadership may change, but the feelings will still be there. And I, I believe in the United States, a lot of people sort of feel they've been taken and their China dream, as they envisioned it, became a China nightmare. And I think there's a lot of anger and frustration about that. So how to reconcile that and how does China go from the 21st century equivalent of the Soviet Union? When I was growing up, we hated Russia because they were this eternal bad guy out to destroy the United States. And that was my fear about that happening in China, and it's happening uh, through in, in many parts of American society. People will tell you, you know, you know, they're 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 just the personification of evil, and so we're we're in this situation. It was mm -hmm. all thanks to social media and the internet and the whole so-called echo chamber of the internet. And so, U.S. and China right now is is in a bad way, and the collateral damage to common people like you and me is quite profound. So how to get out of this situation and move forward. Back when Nixon had the idea to go to China, in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, the U.S. imperialists we were the lowest form of life on earth, yet... Despite all that, we had a few good decades. So I, I think, okay, you know, we're back to where we once were, where the spokesmen for mm -hmm. the respective governments revile each other. But how to move beyond that is really, I think, something very important in the coming years, regardless of what happens in uh, November. Now, you mentioned something they called the, the Chinese dream. You know, and even China, they have still your Zhongguo Meng. Yeah. Right? What is that? Everyone has had their Chinese dream going back to the 19th century. There used to be the old, that old saying about, oh, if these Chinese would only add another inch on the hem of their gowns would keep the mills of Manchester running, you know, for eternity <laughs> or something like that. So there yeah. was this always this China dream of economic riches and of making China this friend and future bastion of democracy. Why is that so elusive? And I've listened to some of the stories on your podcast of people coming chasing their Chinese dream and, you know, who's actually achieved that? And, you know, why, why have most people not get there? I think a lot of people have gotten there, at least looking from an American or North American perspective. You look at someone like Mark Rosewell, there's a fantastic success story. What a positive figure. He gave me so much inspiration in the 90s. He's just this yeah. great bridge of friendship 
just in one person. So yeah, there's one. You know, that, that's true. That's true. You know, and I, for any listeners, uh, Mark Roswell, he's a uh, Dashan. He speaks Chinese <laughs> pretty much better than most natives do in China. But you know something? Back in the 90s, that was like, oh, wow, it's amazing. There were other Dashans, too. But now, gee, guys like Mark Roswell, is there a dime a dozen? There's so many mm. young people go into China that just, just like, wow, man, that is awesome. You know, Laszlo, like, what is a piece of Chinese history you think that, like, most Westerners, like, something that they have no idea about, but you think is something, like, should be important for people to know? I think what's important to know is we most remember recent history, and that's this, which is something that China's not very proud of, you know, the so-called century of humiliation and whatnot, but beginning in the last 150 years of the Qing Dynasty, because it's recent, because it's modern history, recent history, we rem- it's, it's more understood than ancient history. It's something we could get our hands around. There's more material on it. There's more that's been written on it. There are pictures. And this whole notion today of China that was pushed around by the foreigners and suffered all this deprivation, war and civil war. So I was just trying to make that point. There's a lack of understanding about Asia in general and China in particular. And that's why I have the China History Podcast. <laughs> you know, I, I think back to my history class in high school. I mean, I had to like English kings and talking about the Romans. It was so Eurocentric, right? Seriously, you know, I learned nothing about Africa except for the colonization of Africa, you know? Asia, I'm like a dynasty? Yeah, I think they have those, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been doing this history of Xinjiang for several months. I'm just about to do uh, part 11 next week. Mm -hmm. And and for our listeners, Xinjiang, it is the westernmost province of China. So it borders Russia and Kazakhstan. Right. And it's something that's in the news a lot because of all the issues there. And there's really, other than hearing the name, there's, at least in the United States, people don't really know what the history is. So that's why I did this series to try and provide some background. Sometimes that's good enough. Most China history podcast listeners, they're not looking for a whole 18 course banquet to mm-hmm. know everything there is to know. They just want to get the main idea. So in a lot of what I present, it's just offering the main idea so that you can be better informed about some of the things you're reading today. You know, when I started this, it was literally the the final nail to get me to start going was watching C-SPAN and listening Mm. to American representatives in the Senate and the House just to spew their ignorance about China. It's like, God, how did you get this far and have not even a bare bones grasp? If you could go back, back when... Deng Xiaoping was visiting China. You had your whole interest in China really took root. What would you do differently, if anything? I would have immediately gone out to China. That's what I would have done. 1981, I waited eight years before I was already 30 years old before I moved out to China. Although I did visit in 1980. Oh, wow. Yeah. I went out there as a student. You wanted to go to China back then. It was not easy. If you were, you know, a civilian, there was only one mm-hmm. way in. You had to get a tour through the China Travel Service. Good old Zhongli. <laughs> so you had to go there. 
it was anywhere between $1,500 to $2,500. You buy like a 10-day, two-week tour, and that was how I saw China. Wow. 1980. I'll never forget it. And, you know, that's what really did it for me. Do you have a prominent memory from that time? I remember uh, 1980. Shoot. <laughs> if you were a foreigner, that was people would just like, wow, it was like seeing a, a Martian. People would just circle you. I remember being in Tiananmen Square in 1980 and just sort of walking around. There must have been 200 people circled around me trying to mm. copagander. And mm-hmm. I remember somebody from the Gongan came and you know, broke up the crowd, <laughs> you know, and took me away, you know, very nicely. That was wild to be a nobody. And then like, people are so curious about you. But that was only four years out of the Cultural Revolution when I was there. But just feeling the friendship and the genuine curiosity of the people. So that really inspired me a lot. Yeah, I got to know a few people. I was in uh, Qingdao. Qingdao had just like opened the day before I got there. It was like really, even a Spartan would have complained. But yeah, you know, at that age, 21 years old, I didn't care. But I got to know, uh, you know, I'd go hang out. uh, I'd walk on the beach in the morning. And I'd, over the days that I was there, I got to know this guy old guy who had taught himself English. He was a factory mm. worker. Wow. And this guy was like, I remember this guy, I'll never forget him, Zhang Chunpei. He was a, he was a chain smoker. And he'd sit there and he'd, we'd be on the beach with the wind blowing. And this guy knew how to light a match in the wind and light his <laughs> cigarette without the wind blowing it out. Good old Zhang Chunpei. And when I and, and I had these great uh, conversations with him, and we were followed by Gong'an people. I remember when I was talking to him in Chinese, he'd say, oh, no, no, speaking, speak English, because he knew that we were being followed. <laughs> wow. And I stayed in touch with him for years. And I, he, he'd send me lists of books that he wanted, yeah. you know, all classics and whatnot. And I'd send him all these paperbacks constantly and... I just love Chinese culture and meeting these people from China. I had so many friends in Hong Kong and Taiwan. I was like, ah, yeah, this, this is for me. And still is. Lazo, you're impacting hundreds of thousands of people in your podcast. I think you're helping to facilitate greater understanding between many different countries. I'm reminded of that every single day. Every single day, I'm reminded of that with the, with, the, with the emails and comments that I get. Well, also, thank you for what you do. Now, also, uh, tell anyone, where can they find you if they want to find out more about you? Okay, the China History Podcast. It is located in all the podcast apps, and uh, you can access my entire social media profile at my website at teacup.media. And I have a YouTube channel, a SoundCloud channel. We'll put some links in the show notes so anyone listening, you can find out more about Lazo and his podcast there. So, Lazo, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on this podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Jared. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, student driver, happy camper, mountain hiker, rainbow chaser, chili maker, and that one guy named Dylan. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is James Harper. 
I'd like to thank our guests, Laszlo Montgomery, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.